You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony. This week, my guest is Mahushri Grosh, and her new book is called Kabar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory, and Family. Here it comes again, Wednesday, April 13th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. Join me as I teach a free online creative writing workshop through the Los Angeles Public Library on Zoom. Go to lapl.org to register or email me, duchene at gmail.com, and I'll send you the Zoom link. We have good fun. It's good times. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Mother Street Coach, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we had Mahushi Ghosh, and her book is called Kabar, An Immigrant Journey of Food, Memory, and Family. Hi, and please tell me that I screwed up your name and how I should have said it. <laughs> yes, you did. And that's awesome. But I'm the only one you're talking to, so you're talking to me. My name is Mahushri Ghosh. And nice to meet you, Tony. You you say it so much so so much more elegantly than I do. Yeah, my elegance is my middle name. Is it? Oh wow, that's Indian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How about that? Yeah, you know, if you would have just put your middle name on there, it would have been so much easier for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, have you heard Hassan Minaj talk about this? No, like his no. name is actually. His name is actually Hassan Minaj. Uh, you know, he comes from my part of the world. So we pronounce it as Hassan, but people here call him Hassan. So it's become Hassan. But he was talking about the show he did. And he said, you can say Timothy, Timothy Chalamet. So I think you can say Hassan Minaj. Yeah, yeah. I still, I still can't say the Timothy thing. I, I, was, I was at a screening <laughs> once and he was sitting like uh, a row in front of me with his mom. And he was just so cute. And I'm like, it's the Tim. I'm like to to the girl next to me. I'm like, it's the Timothy guy. It's it's the Timothy guy. What's this? <laughs> I don't know. I can't say it. it it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's Tim. But then we also have Shimamanda. So we can say Shimamanda. Yeah. We can say Salman Rushdie. We can say Madhushri Ghosh. It's okay. <laughs> yes. And you want to sell as many books as Salman Rushdie as well. If not more, I would like to connect. I would like to connect with people so we can have a conversation. The book and the audible or the audio narration of it, they're all just part of the conversation that I'd like to start. Yeah. Do you would like to connect with Salman Rushdie? Is that what you remember? No, I'd like to connect with people who want to talk about food and social justice. That's what I'd like to do. But if someone rushly wants to talk about it, I'd be happy to talk to him about it too. Well, there's also there's also an aspect. Of, and is this now? This is your first book, right? This is your debut. This is my first. Yeah. Congratulations! Yeah. How does it feel? Surreal, surreal. Um, you know, I've been I've been writing for decades now. I, I've said it's taken 20 years to get this book out. So when people read this, they come back and say things like, well, it doesn't read like a debut book. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means because 
I feel a lot of us writers spend years in vacuum, you know, typing up a storm or writing up a storm, not knowing whether the words would ever reach anybody. So you always think it's not reaching anybody. You never think, oh, look at me, I'm so amazing uh, that everybody's going to read my work. That's not what you think. Imposter syndrome is, is on point right now. Um, and I don't have an MFA. I, all my degrees are in science. I work in science. I work in oncology diagnostics. So, you know, for me to write a book like this and for people to connect and come back and tell me that they feel like they belong to this country as an immigrant, it, that to me is success. And so it's, it's very surreal. It's very surreal that my words mattered to somebody. It's, it, it, I, I, and I, that's, people just don't understand how much work it takes to actually get a book out into the world and, you know, debut novelist. Yeah. 20 years. You know what? That's kind of normal. Cause sometimes it takes 20 mm-hmm. years of writing to become a right to be, to get, to get it together. But yeah, I, it's also, you know, it's, it's also the craft of writing. It's also the experience of life that you're having before you can actually think with a little bit of gravitas of even, you know, just what does, what does lentils represent to you? Why is it a comfort food? Um, or why do you want to talk about food? I mean, there's so many other things to talk about. And as soon as you talk about food, are you writing a cookbook? Whereas I feel food is essential. That's the one drug that we all need to live and survive, right? And it's the one uh, one thing where you can have a love relationship and a hate relationship and anything in between. Um, and it's, it's also how you can talk about social justice issues. You can talk about childhood memory. You can talk about um, anything that's making you angry, anything that's making you happy, uh, you know, a question of love, hate. This, everything is related to food part of breathing, eating, living, you know, that's what it is. So um, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd talk about it. I never thought I'd write about food because all South Asian authors, when I came to this country, all they did was talk about jasmine and roses and turmeric and cumin and coriander. I was like, I am not going to do that. So that was my deal. I, I didn't want to be, be that person that exoticizes India and uh, South Asia in, in general. I didn't want to do that. And, you know, Sometimes you shouldn't challenge the gods. So look what I come up with now. It's all about food. Well, it, but it makes so much sense because I like even with even with someone that I don't like that much. You know, if I go have a meal with them, I'll probably like them a little more after because we sat there and we chatted, and it's it's kind of what we've done since civilization began, right? Let's let's sit down, let's eat, and let's talk. And there's, it's, that's why, re, I mean, restaurants should, restaurants really shouldn't exist, but restaurants exist to bring people together. You know, yeah, there's good mm-hmm. food, whatever. But I think for the most part, it's bring the people together, sit down, talk and like engage with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think um, everybody will use this and I'll use this because I've written about him ad nauseum. Uh, Anthony Bourdain and his, uh, you know, idea of having a conversation across the table. I work in cancer diagnostics and I work in negotiations, conflict management and negotiations, which means uh, conflict doesn't mean you're fighting with each other. Conflict means, okay, we don't agree. How do we come to a happy medium? 
And uh, part of conflict management or negotiations is one-on-one of that is um, you can't negotiate with a person if the person's, you can't be at the negotiation table trying to negotiate with that person if that person is not at the table. So if that person's not even at the table, who are you negotiating with? So I feel when you're putting food on that table and you're having this conversation with this other person, 50% of that work is done already. That person is at that table. So you may not like that person, but that person is trying as much as you are because you both are at that table. Now, then you start talking about the food. Either the food is awful or the food is amazing or the food is awful to you and it's amazing to them or somewhere in between. That's where the conversation starts, right? That's where the conversation starts. So I think Anthony Bourdain did an amazing job of really talking to people, different kinds of people, different parts of the world. And what he did was listen. And uh, because he was an essayist, because his work was really focused on on understanding what we didn't know or what we were trying to grapple with. Um, It made it that much more nuanced. And I feel any form of food writing is some form of negotiation. It's some form of interrogation of the world that we live in and how we can try to understand the other side. You, You can agree to disagree, but in order for you to do that, you need to have a conversation. So I hope this book is doing that. I like that. So your day job is going into negotiations and is that way? So, so you, you're, you, what you do is you resolve conflict. Is that your gig? (laughs) Is that my gig? Um, I lead global strategic alliances and, and uh, initiatives in an oncology or a cancer diagnostics company. By that, I mean, I work with pharmaceutical companies, I work with hospitals, I work with key opinion leaders to make sure that the diagnostic test that we are bringing about is going to help the hospital in turn helping patients, in turn helping diagnosis, so we are able to get to um, a better patient care uh, quicker. So in cancer diagnostics, I'll, I'll go down my cancer route now, in cancer, especially lung cancer, Post-diagnosis, if you don't start treatment, uh, you have about 16 weeks, that's four months before you deteriorate um, and there can't be much done. So as soon as the diagnosis is done, you need to know what treatment needs to happen, when, why, and how. And all depends on the stage of cancer. So four months isn't a long time. You sat two and a half years in a pandemic. So, you know, Four months isn't a long time. So my role here is to continue to push the technologies platform partners, continue to push the hospitals, the the clinics to say, okay, doctors, this is the test. This is why you need this test. And and they'll come back and say, no, we don't want this test because of X, Y, Z, or it's too much paperwork, or it's too expensive, or it takes too long. But nothing takes too too long when a patient's life is is in, in in discussion. And so so what I'm negotiating with is trying to reduce the time to treatment for a patient who's waiting to be treated. And what's a, what's a, what's something you've learned over the years where you're, cause you, it sounds like you're dealing with people who have like high status in all these different areas and you got to kind of like come back, Hey everyone, let's come back to earth, to the, to the issue at hand. 
like like how mm-hmm. how how do you bring people together who are at odds with the um the different ways that they feel they're doing it right <laughs> yeah so uh, I, I feel you know you 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 you're actually absolutely right because because in the medical profession you would not want to go to like you as a patient, I as a patient would not want to go to a doctor who's doubting themselves. Right? Yeah. You don't want to be like, oh, I like this test, or maybe I like that test. You think, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So invariably, you'll have medical professionals who are like, who are very type A. They know what they're talking about. This is what they do. They don't have time to waste with you, blah, blah, blah. But I've been in this medical field for many years, so I'm type A too. <laughs> so the way to handle this is, find out what you have in common. What, what do we have in common, them and us, is we want to save patients. That's what we want. I mean, it's very simple. Very simple. You want to be kind, you want to save patients. So in order for you to do that, if you have data that backs up why your test is better than whatever test they're using, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's accuracy, whether it's reproducibility, whether it's available much quicker, that's what you need. You want to make the life of a medical profession you know, easy. You want them to not have to stress over things. You want to make it as quick as possible so they can help the patients. And so if that's your focus, it, this job is very simple. That makes sense. And it's, you know, I had a colonoscopy last year. And when the doctor called and he said, oh, oh. I just want to tell you, you're all clear. He said it with authority. And it was one of the greatest days of my life. I was just like, all right, thank you. So yeah, there is something good about, uh, you're like, you you know, uh, it's, it's almost like you really looked, I appreciate that. You really looked. (laughs) Yes. And, and you have a squeaky clean colon for sure. Yes. (laughs) Happiness, happiness in the fifties. What, um, what do your colleagues uh, feel about your book or do they know you have a book coming out do you kind of keep it on the down low or are you like parading it up and down the uh, hallways and um the company i work for is the largest oncology uh, testing company in north america uh, but more importantly it is uh, a company that actively focuses on culture actively focuses on diversity equity inclusion and belonging and that's why I joined this place. Uh, I lead diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging within my division um, besides my day job. So as a company, it's very different from the standard corporate world. Uh, you just do your job. You don't have a family. You don't have a personal life. All you do is your job, right? That's what corporate America has been brought up to be. But I feel with the pandemic, a lot of things have changed. A lot of people have started to be more aware that you have a life outside of work. And I've never hidden the fact that I write. Um, I think it makes me a a little different. It also tells people that you can use both sides of your brain and still be somewhat normal. It's quite okay. So uh, (laughs) so, have you come um, in to talk to one of my classes about that? Yeah, because 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 I teach writing, you know, and I, when they one of my first mm-hmm. lectures is you're making the worst I, you're making the worst decision of your life. <laughs> so if you're in this game, it's really bad. If you have to be in this game, then it's the greatest thing ever. But if you don't get out. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they, it does. Writing, writing makes you humble. Right. Writing you know, gives you many different ways of 
of how to despair, <laughs> but the joy is when you get the joy, it's fascinating. So yes, I, in my company, they're very excited. Everybody ran out and bought a copy. Uh, so they've been very sweet about it. They don't understand it, but they've been very sweet about it. So They, they don't understand the book or understand the... I've had comments, not from my co direct colleagues, but from customers who've, who've seen my, my news all over uh, social media. Oh, you know, um, uh, in the two years of the pandemic, I, I and my wife made sourdough bread and you wrote a book. And I don't have the heart to tell them I've been writing this book for 20 years. So I don't know. Oh, what right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, that was that I got the same thing too, where the pandemic started and people were like, oh, this must be great for you because you're a writer. And I'm like, no, actually, it's not. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. And I and I was like blocked for two years. I can't write anything when there's a pandemic. The whole world's going to hell. Whole <laughs> <laughs> world's going to hell regardless, though, Tony. Yeah, true. But at least I can go outside and look at people in the eyes and see their mouths now. And there's something about that. You're like, oh, mm. you're you're judging me. That's awesome. <laughs> before I couldn't tell, before I couldn't tell if someone was giving me a dirty look. Now I could see them give me a dirty look, and I go, ah, oh, thank you, very gracious. Thank you for the dirty look. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. I don't know. I go out with my dog, and she's beautiful. So they just look at her, and that's fantastic for me. You know, if I get a dog, I can get less dirty looks because mm -hmm. they'll look at the dog instead exactly. of me. You know, I mean, the other problem really? is I should probably wear a shirt outside, too. But I guess maybe, you know, it's. Uh... I mean, Timothy Chalamet did not wear a shirt. Oh, and isn't he gorgeous? That, that kid he is, is gorgeous. Very beautiful, that boy. Yeah. That boy yeah. is very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. I know we're gonna have to have we're gonna put hashtag Timothy Shalamala and then uh, <laughs> then maybe he'll look at us and go, oh, they were talking about me. No, yeah, but I don't know what actors do so, in their off time. There, I, I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I've never been famous, so but you know, who knows? Um, and yet, the and it yeah, through this uh, through your journey. This is also there's there's also a romance in here that didn't work out a divorce, which intrigues me to know I, because I'm divorced. Oh, does that does that make you happy to hear about divorces? Um, no, it's it, happy would be the wrong word. I think it's camaraderie in the pain ah. of what divorce is, because it's um. It's never pleasant. Um, you know, mine was mine was not what they call amicable. I love the word amicable. It just it sounds like an infusion in your eyeball. Oh, I got an amicable, you know. <laughs> how's your divorce? It's amicable. And it's just like, ow. And they're like, oh, okay, well, at least it's not, you know, sodomiacal, um, which is a medical term, <laughs> yeah, that I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, but the um it's just it's one I, of the things that's just a that's just awful no matter what. Fifty percent of marriages end in divorce, right? So, yeah, it's either you or me or both of us, right? Yeah. Um, but also, as a Gen Xer, uh, South Asian, we don't divorce much. <laughs> we don't divorce much. 
Right. And so to to go down this path and also you know, first to get married to the man I loved um, and who was not from my part of the world, my, my state, the way we lived, the way we ate, the way we cooked, everything. It's, it's just not the same. And, uh, you know, to argue with your parents, to get married to this man, to sh- prove to them that this was the right decision and then realize, oh, you, you know what? The parents were right. <laughs> you know? So I can joke about it now, but I've, I was talking to a friend of mine recently uh, about this. And um, I think regardless of how much not amicable your divorce is, there was a time in your life you really loved that person. There was a time in your life you really thought this was worth it, that it's okay to go through a lot of help uh, to, to, to make sure that this works. So when that doesn't work out, then heartbreak is painful. It's painful. So it's not just that, oh, that person was mean to me. What's painful is, is we all seek happiness, we all seek love, we all seek acceptance, and you don't realize when these little annoyances build up and build up some more and build up some more, and it's not an annoyance anymore. Then it's, it's a, a complete divergence of personalities and lives and hopes and dreams, and that is tragic. So yes, we can make fun of our divorces. We can make fun of our, you know, you know what we went through because that's one way of coping with it. But at the end of the day, it's a sad thing. It is sad. So, and after you've acknowledged the tragedy of, of a marriage breaking up, you have to understand and determine how you want to live the rest of your life. So you can sit around and be mean about it and talk about your ex and all the awful things they did to you or you can talk about it matter of factly and say this is where my life has moved and this is why I, I am at peace right um, I talk about this I, I debated on how much I wanted to talk about this but I wanted to talk about it primarily because of a couple of reasons Gen Xers uh, South Asians we don't divorce much um, there's a new uh, magazine called Cover, which is another play on Cover, but Cover means news. Cover magazine did a, um, a uh, survey, and just recently, this year, 40% of South Asian marriages uh, in North America uh, have some form of domestic partner abuse, whether it's emotional, uh, physical, financial, you know, TBD. So when that, again, if that's the case, then the statistic is very similar to divorce rates in this country, which is 50%, which means every other South Asian you meet is is actually in real life going through some form of abuse that you don't even know about. So I wanted to talk about it primarily because of that, that folks don't feel alone. I also wanted to talk about it because as a feminist, uh, people automatically at least that was my experience, automatically assume that you can't, you know, you can't be gaslit. You cannot be abused. You cannot be in this torturous, traumatic situation. And I would like folks to understand that, you know, it's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got nothing to do with anything. It just has to do with how the situation was and what you did or did not do at that time. 
and maybe it takes a few tries before you finally say I'm done. Um, any abusive situation, um, again, I'm a science gal, so I'm gonna throw statistics at you. It takes about seven tries before anyone can, someone who is in a domestic uh, abuse, partner abuse situation, takes seven tries before they leave. So, so it's important that we acknowledge that it happens a lot. It's also important that I talk about it because uh, I've had people say, well, for such a sad little story, you're very jolly. <laughs> and, and my take on this is, you know, you, you can be jolly and still have been in a traumatic situation. You don't have to wear it on your sleeve all the time, but I also don't want to not acknowledge what happened. Yeah, yeah. The, um, I, I mean, I, my, so my, I was a Jehovah's Witness when I got married. So there's no divorce in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's like mm. where you're shunned for uh, life. And, um, and I've been shunned for life. Um, but, um, but yeah, that the, the not, not being able to get out of it. I mean, I understand that because it's just, it's, it's pretty mind blowing. Um, now, now, you know, some, and it's to the point where sometimes you know, like you brought up love and I, I, I still believe in love. I still believe, you know, and I'm glad I have loved and, and, you know, and love does have heartbreak involved. And it's just like, what a, what a much better way to live in a vulnerable heart state where you can have heartbreak than to live in a state where um, you're like a robot and just avoiding anything. Cause that's, that's boring. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's be vulnerable. Let's be open. Let's see what happens. And um, what, where, where was I going? With that? <laughs> you, you're going, going with love. You were talking about love. going with love and, um, and being open um, especially after, after, after something like divorce or something that, Oh, that's mm -hmm. where I was going with it. But there are times in my life where I go, you know what? Arranged marriage might not be a bad thing. Tell me why. <laughs> I don't know. See, this is from your culture, not my culture. So this is me looking, this is me from the outside looking in, but it's just like, maybe the parents would know better. Maybe the people who know us the best have a way to know better. And, and, it, and maybe there is something there to that because what, because in the end, love is kind of a choice too, even though, I mean, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I would never be a fellow that could ever get into an arranged marriage, <laughs> like, but, but just sometime, you know, it's just kind of like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, like even with religious beliefs, I'm, I'm pretty much agnostic, but you know, but wouldn't it be cool if there is a heaven? <laughs> so that's, that's my angle on it. What, what are your okay. thoughts? Cause, you, Cause you're looking I'm at me like I'm the back. craziest man alive right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a no judgment zone. I know you do you. Absolute um, judgment. We, this is a judgment show. What do you mean? Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Fist of cuffs. I just think, I mean, my family hasn't had arranged marriages, but I feel like, you know, when you're going on these dating sites, you're doing the same thing. These dating sites are also arranging your marriage. You're doing it, but it could be that when your friends, when your friends are like, well, my, my friend looks sad. So I set up a blah, blah, blah right. profile for him or her. It's, how is that not arranged? Right. Right. Uh, when you the have, algorithm when is you arranging have, for us. 
Exactly. So, you know, before folks start saying, oh, it's in your culture and not in mine, take a step back and think about it. We're all doing it. Um, right. The difference, the difference is in, in uh, South Asian cultures, even Asian cultures in general, uh, the arrangement has to do with practicalities of it, which is, uh, you know, do they have jobs? Can they manage a household? Does it look like they can have children together? Can the genetic material be continued on through the progeny, you know? Um, and then, you know, in our culture where I come from, I'm a Hindu, 100% atheist, so I don't believe in any of the rituals, but, but I also come from a family that was very progressive and didn't believe in all these rituals. But Hindus, I mean, I love the, the tradition of it. It's very interesting to find out, but you had the caste system, which is a very rigid form of saying you can marry so-and-so, but you cannot marry so-and-so. And the reason being, and it's, it's, if you look at it from the genetic profile, they just remain the same. So you have the Brahmins who are the highest caste, you have the uh, Kshatriyas uh, or the Kayas who are the uh, kings, administrators, clerks, and then come the Banyas or the business class, and then come the low class, uh, you know, low class uh, in that structure. And then you have the uh, what they used to call untouchables, and now uh, it, they have a different term, uh, Dalits, which is way beyond the class. And and it's 100% unfair. It's 100% unfair in that you've had generational trauma because of that caste system. But that caste system also brings about um, a conversation about who, who can you love and who can you marry. Um, and so, so parents then would want you to marry within your caste in order for you to preserve your genetic material. When you have inter-caste marriage, that's not it. And then you have in India, um, a big hue and cry over Muslims and Hindus marrying, two different religions marrying. That's a bigger issue. And you know, I can go on and on about the fascist nationalistic government in India right now, but uh, I just want to talk about the caste system here. But that caste system is actually also transferred over to North America, where there's been a Cisco um, case where a, a Dalit uh, employee sued Cisco and their manager, who's, who's South Asian, and basically created a toxic work environment by, by uh, making sure that everybody else knew that they came from a lower uh, class and caste than the manager. And there was a big monument case um, that went up to the Supreme Court over it. So uh, Americans can't escape that. We Indians and South Asians, we are everywhere. And so the arranged marriage concept actually is pretty prevalent here. So the second part to arranged marriage is that, I mean, I can debate myself to that. I can talk about pros and cons of the same thing. So the pros of arranged marriage are your parents know you best. They know you best. They also know what you need. They also know, you know, how 20 years down the road, what your life should be, or they would like your life to, to be. So when you have tiger moms and tiger dads who get you into the right school and right education and right, so you trust them when they do that, then why don't you trust them when they try and choose you, your partner, right? Um, that's never happened in my family, but I've thought about it a lot when there have been classmates of mine who actively said, no, this is so much easier. But if you look at it from the perspective of an arranged marriage uh, concept, when, when you are getting into that kind of an arrangement, you've already decided I'm gonna make this work. 
you've already decided, I don't know this person. So anything he or she does, uh, I'm going to learn and absorb and try and figure out how best to make it work. There is not a single person who gets into a marriage and says, let's see how long this lasts, <laughs> you know? So, right, uh, right. you know, there are some good, there's some good things about it. I'm assuming, I don't think I, I'm not made up for things like that. <laughs> that never worked out for me. But, you know, good luck to anybody else who wants to do it that way. And I wish them the very best. It's and and so see, I had to be a virgin until I was married, so I wasn't able to have sex until I was married, and that I I think that would be the same, right? You 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 wouldn't, mm-hmm. and um, you mm-hmm. know, and that and that just seemed normal to me until I found out I was getting divorced in my thirties, and then I was just, and then after, and then I was just like, oh wait, we're supposed to take a <laughs> test drive, like like it's kind of important to know what goes on in bed. Because because what goes on in bed kind of also is the dynamic of the relationship and what ha- and how people um, are intimate or not intimate, how they deal with certain conflicts or if, you know, there's and you can really get to know a person that I mean, you really do get to know a person that way. And, um, <laughs> and, you're just, and you know, sometimes you're like, wow, this is not going to work out. Not because the person there's anything wrong. It's just not the it's not the chemistry and it's not the. It's not the cut. It's mm-hmm. not the kaboom, or it's even not the little spark. You know, it's uh, so yeah. It's you know, I mean, so me growing up in a weird, weird religion where it was, you know, they, I mean, and they push marriage on you so fast. I was, I was very weird for waiting until I was twenty five. Uh, I was in interrogations mm-hmm. of what I. It's it was really uh, not easy to wait. And then when I did wait, um, and then after I was married then all the pressure was off and it blew my mind. And that's when I started to go, wait a second, this religion, this belief system is actually really awful. If they're mm. not, you know, up, not interrogating me constantly just because I'm married now, you know, it's uh, it, anyway, I'm going on too much was about it, that. Was there anything, anything good about it though? Being in the Jehovah's in the Witnesses? Religion? Yes, there was. Mm-hmm. I, th- yeah, there was a lot of good to it. I actually I wrote a book about it, and I was really trying to capture the good as well as the um, the bad part of it. Um, and there, I I feel like I got to take a lot of I, I took a lot of the good stuff that came out of it, but at the same time, it's it's a rough belief system. I don't know if you know Scientology, like if it's just mm-hmm. like. Yeah, there might be some good stuff, but wow, <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. I love it though. I I love I love talking about this because I feel every religion is cultish. Every religion is. Yes. That some of them have better PR. Some of them just have better PR. So and true. And they steal all the art in the world. They steal all the art in the world, and they stick them in their museums and tell us priests can have sex with little boys and girls, and it's okay. That is that is so true because it, it's it's almost like uh, acceptable cults, um, and then and then yeah, it's I, I I agree. It's so strange though that I mean I needed it. And I told I mean I didn't need it, but I was in from a kid, so that was my only belief. There was no other belief. It's, it wasn't like I had any choice. Sure. And then after, and then a couple things kind of get in your head a little bit, and you go, oh wait a second, okay, 
now I need to start thinking a bit for myself, which is very discouraged. It's, it's not even discouraged. Mm. It's do not do that because that's apostasy and we will shun you, you know, and it's just like, then mm. you start to go, oh, wow. Um, so anyway, mm. the, uh, but it's just, it, it's just interesting with, uh, with relationships that, you know, sometimes it's in the, in the Jehovah's Witnesses, relationships are great, right? They work out. Um, and I, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's just different strokes for different folks because, uh, they, you know, I, I personally have to live a, a very free of the mind life. I can't, I can't live a, a, a life of being, you know, and people want to be told what to do. People don't want to take responsibility for coming up with their own morality. And, you know, it's just like, throw that on someone mm. else. And then all I have to worry about is blank, blank, blank. And it's, uh, yeah, which isn't that, which isn't that fun. It depends on how, how, look, thinking for yourself is work. <laughs> it's work. Yeah. I'd rather be told what to do, when to go. You know, why do we think, why do you think we have a corporate world? Why have we bought into it? Right? Why have we bought into it? Because they give us money. They give us healthcare. You know, so I will do what you tell me to. I will not, you know, I will not. If I don't agree with you, I will not agree with you quietly. I'm not going to rock the boat. It's the same thing with writing. Um, Leon Low Diversity uh, Statistics is what? 66% of published books are by, by people of color, of which you know most of them are women, and, um, and everything else is white. So who made that rule? And so when people come back and say things like, oh, you know, there are quite a few, somebody just mentioned that has got me thinking. Um, a lot of you are, a lot of you meaning South Asians, are South Asians, a lot of you are publishing at the same time. So it's very hard for us to keep track because, you know, we all look alike. Um, so, um, you know, <laughs> people, can't, people can't deal with more than five authors writing the same, you know, same, coming from the same world. And you may be writing completely different things, but nobody cares because your names are unpronounceable. And therefore, we will lump you into the bucket of, I, I'm intimidated by you, and therefore, I don't want to talk about this. So we are, we are, how do we rock the boat, you know? You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you want to, when you reach out to an agent, you want to be very polite. And when they say no, or they ghost you, you don't, you don't write back to them and say, hey, that was rude. You don't, you don't want to rock the boat. So that's what, what it is with us. We are all given these rules. This is how you should write a query letter. This is how you should write a book proposal. This is how you should write a book. The book should have a minute, you know, uh, beginning, middle, and end, and it should have, you should close the, the arc. You should only do, um, you know, show and not tell. Um, I mean, talked about it ad nauseum that we come, we Asians, South Asians, we come from a culture of folklore. We come from a culture of, you know, mythology and fantasy, and we, you know, that's how we were brought up. So our stories have showing, it has telling, and everything in between. So all these rules that white publishing has has established for us, we brown people have been aligning with that primarily because we like being told what to do. 
I well, changed yeah. my my name was Mother Shree Ghosh. It's always been Mother Shree Ghosh, but my PhD advisor shortened it to Madhu because it was difficult for him to pronounce. And I said okay, and I was that till my memoir was fully written and. Somebody was asking, you know, how would you write your name on the cover? And, and I was like, well, my parents named me Madhushri, and that's the Sanskrit name, and I explained the whole thing. And they're like, why don't you call yourself by your name? And that's when I realized how much of this you're internalizing. This, this is violence. You're internalizing that. And so, but why do you do that? You do that because it's convenient. It, you do that because you don't want to rock the boat. And I feel like in every aspect of our lives, we need to rock the boat because the status quo isn't working. Right, it's not working. At the same time, it's interesting because Western, and I just found this out recently, and it makes so much sense. Is Western, uh, the 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 story roots of like the West, um, and I'm, I'm plagiarizing about five different things I've read, <laughs> but like it comes from like the the it's like comes from Greece. It, it's kind of has its origin of Greek, where there's a hero. And that's like the hero's mm-hmm. journey. And it's such like a Western thing yeah. where it's just like da, 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 mm-hmm. the hero. And then, but places like China and other places there, there was more of a, no, it's not a hero. It's a collective. It's our stories mm-hmm. are about collecting together and looking at each other and mm-hmm. how do we come together? And it's just, so a lot of it, I feel is just a cultural, it's just a cultural difference. And it just, and just, you know, when, and, and it's so when, you know, it's just like, oh, okay. It does, you know, it's like, I, I get, uh, I, I get it too. When I, when my first book was like, the people are like, no one wants to hear what a Jehovah's Witness story is, <laughs> you know, when I, and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't care what you think because I didn't write a Jehovah's Witness story. I wrote a love story. It's just based on the Jehovah's Witnesses, but onward sure. we go because I'll, I'll find someone else who's going to come around to, because, because oh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't market well. <laughs> You know, so I think there's yeah. this, um, there's just, there's hoops uh, with, you know, uh, just I, in, in the publishing, in the publishing world, the, everybody's got an excuse why it's not going to work. So, you know, you either hold it to heart and be all upset about it, or you just move on to the person who's going to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, I, we have to be so, uh, it's, it's, all, I, you know, I always tell my students, I, I'm like, own your truth, own your story, know that you did the best that you did and that's, and just be true to yourself. And that's it. And everyone else can go F themselves. And, you know, it's just like, don't think about Don't think about marketing when you're writing, think about your heart and think about your truth and your experience to this moment, because I could give everybody this, I can give everybody 60 story beats and go, mm-hmm. you have to write these 60 story beats and this, and this story. And they will come back with very different takes on it because of right. who they are, how they grew up, where they're from, their struggles, their victories. And it's, that's the beauty of it all. That's the, that's the greatness of it. I think people, too many people write for market. And that's when I, that's when I start to read a book and I can tell, I'm like, oh man, it just feels a little dishonest. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if you notice that sometimes when you're reading a book and you're just like, absolutely. Yeah, you're just like Absolutely. this is this is not this is not from the heart, and then out the window it goes for me because I'm just like, yeah, no. And I, and I think, yeah, and I think what we don't do as writers is when we are listening to writing workshop instructors, um, because we want to 
get published, not because we want to write better. You know, that if you go in to want to get published, it's a different, you know, part of your brain that works versus if you just want to write better, right? And when, you, when you're working towards publication, um, you have to be much more analytical. But if you haven't even written a piece that has, has heart in it, it doesn't matter. Because you can always edit your work. That's right. where your analytical brain comes into play. Uh, people have all talked about writing notes. You know, it came from my heart. I, I woke up in the night and my character spoke to me, blah, 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 all that. That's good and fine, but at the end of the day, when you have a mess of a manuscript in front of you, the way to pare it down is analytical. It's very analytical. There is no kill your darlings. Every one of your words should be your darling. So there is no killing your darling. And so fix it the way you want it presented, but, um, but we don't give, we writers don't give readers the respect they deserve. We are trying to feed them what has been fed to us, that this is what's going to work. This is what we think you like. And the fact is the readers are like, nope, that's not what I like. And I know what I like. So uh, if we just listen to ourselves as readers, what do we gravitate to? And think in that terms that is that my writing style? Do I write that way? Because what I wrote uh, is very different. It's a collection of essays. It's a memoir. It's a full narrative. It's a social justice um, uh, document, but it's also about domestic partner abuse. It's also about warring uh, food stalls. It's also about uh, you know colonial British rule. It's also about masala chai. It's a lot of things. So you know the publishing industry could have just been like, well, we don't really want her work because it's too much. But then I had a, a fantastic press, University of Iowa Press, who just fell in love with it. They figured out what I was trying to do. The editorial process was fantastic. So you, all you have to do is speak your truth, write your truth, and the people will come. They will come. You know, I am living proof of that. So I know it took me 20 years, but they'll come. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's, um, I mean, and it, and it shows as I was reading your book, I was just, it's just, it just, it hasn't, it has a flow. It has a rhythm. Like I'm just sitting there going, I think she was a DJ. She may have been a DJ at a club because it, because it felt like you're putting the right record on. And it's just like, and then you're like, going, wah, 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 poof, drop, drop the. You, know, you bring up, I didn't think of it that way, but I've been getting that a lot. I've had people ask me if I, if I'm a musician or I, I sang or, and I did, I, I, when we were growing up, um, we went to uh, uh, Indian classical uh, vocal training. I, I did that for almost uh, 10, 14 years. And so, you know, you know rhythm, you know rhythm. So if you know rhythm as a child, that actually goes on into your work. I think even the way I speak is very rhythmic because that's how the, I think it's training. But I didn't think of it till you know, folks like you who are reading, I think, hey, did you learn music? How did you know? Like, I never mentioned this in the book at all. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, and I, I, I get a kick out of um, reading. Uh, it, it's sometimes like, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of like, you know, musicians and bands who are that kind of famous and they have their books and they write their books and their mm. books suck. And, they're, they're, and they're, they just, it's awful. But my friends who are like, musicians and they really are actual writers they 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 have a uh yes especially if they just play a, a, a music instrument there's just there's some type of almost like divine 
conversation that, that's in between the words where it's just it's so beautiful mm. to read and you're just going it, it's like it's like they know the negative space and it's just I'm like oh <laughs> I wish I can do that <laughs> but I you know I only know a couple chords on a guitar and it's very embarrassing but you have a rhythm that's different too I mean not everything has to be regular rhythm either right 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 no true yeah we we all get we all get in our jams I mean and I yeah I noticed yeah there's that's that's why we write we then that's why we keep writing all the time because that's the only way we get to find our rhythm is to dive into it it's funny i was talking about the first you know the first draft is um after working on that it's i it's like i i, I used to be in tech i used to be in the tech industry for like three years and then I, and that usually surprises people they're like you don't look like a tech guy and i was like no i was actually really good at it but i but i left and went no i'm out of this because you guys are working 15 hours a day and I got to go right. So I'll see you later. But, um, mm. but, the, uh, but I do love the technical part of um, the rewrites. Cause I, cause I always say mm. you have to, I like to fix problems, but in order to have problems, you got to create problems. And that's the first draft. Mm -hmm. So I just, Oh, create all these mm. problems. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And then you get to fix the problems. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think um, that's why I like the concept of a braided essay structure where you're running two or three themes and they all ultimately end up being talking about the problem that you want to talk about, whether it's solved or not, that's besides the point, but it, you want to get to that crux. But when the reader is reading that they should be going on that journey with you, of, oh, and then, oh, they're talking about this. Oh, and now the author is talking about that. What are they talking about? If, if you're... If as a reader, I'm challenged, I'm not that confused, but I'm confused enough, then I want to read more because I'll keep saying this. I think readers are very intelligent. They know what to do. They know how to piece together things. So that's why I love writing braided essays because at the end of it, you know, you come to a, to a, a conclusion or a solution um, and, the, and the reader usually is extremely happy because they followed it all the way through or they're extremely shocked because they're like, oh, well, I had no idea this was coming. Either way, it's a reaction that you want. If they look at it and say, this is awful, I'm going to throw this book away, that's also a good reaction, in my opinion. That means that's not a book for them. That's what it means. You know? It's a great reaction um, so if they purchase the book and I'd then they throw it away. People to purchase, <laughs> I'd love for them to purchase. Uh, uh, Suchitra Vijay and another uh, friend of mine who's written an amazing book, Midnight's Waters, said that I would love for you guys to purchase my books. And if you hate them, buy 20 more and burn them, but buy them first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I will come to your book burning and offer a free reading. <laughs> as long as there's 20 books being burned. <laughs> exactly. That's how we go. Yeah. What are you working on? Are you working on something now? Are you got you? Are we on the, the next project? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, aren't we all? Aren't we always working on something? Yeah, it's. I, I think um, it's uh, monumental for me. It's kind of a dissatisfaction. It's a little itch in my soul that I don't feel. Um, I don't feel I'm doing anything right if I'm not continuing on something else. And um, right. And it kind of keeps the. Yeah. It keeps the sanity of stuff that gets out there that just feels surreal and feels you know like the imposter thing. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel real at all. And then sometimes it feels real, 
but it's just like the mm. only thing that really feels real to me is the process and working every day. And that's, that's the only reality that I have in that moment. I don't have my past. I do have my future in my head. Cause I'm like, Oh wait, this will be 300 pages or 500 pages. And I'll have to pare it down to 150 and then open it back up. But, um, but it's all, you know, it's just like the daily, the daily grind showing up to the yoga class. So you can do tree pose. I can't do tree pose. I can't do tree pose. Six months later, you're like, I got tree pose. How did I get tree pose? Tree pose just happened. Didn't just happen. It was six months. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think I totally agree with you. With regards to tree pose, I remember after back surgery, they asked me to, week one after back surgery, they asked me to, you know, touch my toes. And I used to be pretty active and, uh, you know, going to practice yoga. Couldn't bend beyond my waist, couldn't bend. And I remember sitting there and bawling my heart out because, oh, yeah. Know, now what? You know, you're done. Life is over, you know? But, but, they're, but, they're like, no, we'll, we'll keep doing this. You, you still tried though? And are you, you st- yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but it was, it was six months of, of uh, not six months, six weeks of active physical therapy. And by the end of it, I was able to touch my toes. So, I'm not saying I'm elegant. I'm just saying I can do my yoga. That's, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with, with writing too, I, I've had a practice of writing for two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening after I come back from work. I've been doing that for almost 20 years. So it's, it's almost like brushing my teeth, drinking my coffee. I do that. Um, I'm not, you know, people are like, well, you know, you should journal. I don't journal. I write. Yeah. Um, I just write. And then, you know, either it gets into something or it doesn't. <laughs> that's besides the point. So yeah, I'm working on uh, a couple of things simultaneously. One is about um, the history of San Diego, and it's it's um, it's auto fiction. It's not nonfiction. It's auto fiction, and uh, it's about the scamming history of San Diego, of my neighborhood here, which I find fascinating. Hmm. And another one is actually an offshoot of. Um, about the first chapter in the book uh, uh, about the Punjabi-Mexican hybrid community of Imperial and Yuba counties uh, in California and, 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 and their food, which is very, it's a hybrid Mexican-Indian food and mm-hmm. how that community is dying. It's dying. Oh dying my God. Out now, so I want, uh, now I want um, those, re- I want those recipes and I want those restaurants and I want to, I want to go, I want to be, I want to taste that. Yeah, we, we, we should go on a road trip. That's what we should do. Well, all right then. You got my number. <laughs> <laughs> I sure do. So do you. <laughs> Madrushi, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an honor. Thank you so much, Tony. The world is just a great big onion. And hey, that fear
Mahushri Ghosh on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Kabar, An Immigrant Story of Food, Memory, and Family. Keep reading, keep writing, keep telling your stories, keep taking in stories. It's the only way to celebrate life's ups and downs. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and I'll see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.